Hey, we are on a tour through the land of Revelation, and uh, as you know, and we are in this tour to see more of Jesus Christ is the whole objective of this. And kind of before you even maybe open your Bibles and turn to Revelation chapter 12, uh, I want to summarize up five pictures. In fact, here we go, five pictures in five minutes. Let the, uh, let the bids be made. Um, here we go, five pictures, five minutes summarizing up some key things related to our whole series, the first of which is on the screen. Uh, Jesus Christ revealed. Revelation chapter 1, verse 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ. In the beginning of this series, we talked about how that not only is that referring to the fact that it is sourced from Jesus Christ, but it is also revealing Jesus Christ. The source and the subject of the book of Revelation is Jesus Christ, and so we are going in this to see and learn more of who he is. Picture number two, we're going out about this series in a bus tour-like fashion, and that's on by design, not just because I love VW vans. Uh, With that, I want to note it's a first-timers bus tour. This is not a tour for tour guides. This is also not a class, it's not a seminar, but we're really on a bus tour, and that means a couple things. Number one, that means we are experiencing this together. If you know a lot about God's Word, if you know a little about God's Word, you are welcome on this tour, and we are all doing it together uh, as a tour group. Also, that means that we are letting it unfold. We're going chapter by chapter, site by site, letting things unfold. We're not going to the end of the story and bringing the end in on all of the front of the story. We are just like a tour bus. We are going along towards the whole process, site by site, chapter by chapter. Picture number three. This bus tour is about laying out the pieces. This was a picture I used a few Sundays ago. It's an airplane, a homemade uh, home kit airplane, and all of the pieces laid out. What we are doing is laying out the pieces on this bus tour site by site. Now you can see that the fuselage, the main center of the airplane, is kind of the revelation. That means that there are other books of the Bible that speak about eschatology, that speak about the end times. But we are not doing what would be called a systematic theology study of eschatology. A lot of big words there. We are not doing a Genesis to Revelation, what the whole Bible has to say about the end times. We are keying ourselves in the book of Revelation which is one component of all of that. Picture number four, Picasso's painting Guernica. Uh, I brought this up a few weeks ago as well. Uh, Picasso had painted this and all kinds of imagery in the painting here that you see. And I talked about how uh, all the imagery is not an invitation for you and I by Picasso to interpret it however we want. We don't go to the painting and go, I think it's this and you think it's that and you think it's that. We go to the painting asking the question, what did the original painter, what did Picasso mean by each of the images that he puts in his painting? And that's what we're doing with the book of Revelation. We're going to the book of Revelation to seek to find out what the author, what the painter uh, of the book of Revelation, what God had to say about this, even within all of some of the imagery. And by the way, chapters 12 through 14, we are right in the craziest imagery almost of the entire book right now. Picture number five. I'm going to make it. Picture number five, to accomplish these first four pictures, to see Christ, to 
to let the text unfold like a bus tour, to lay out the pieces prior to assembling them all together, and to seek what the original painter, what the original author had to say. What I ask us to do in the beginning of this series is, if you will, to maybe consider taking off some theological glass frameworks that you might have. Now, I realize that's kind of a vulnerable thing. That's a bit of a risky thing. Duggar, you ask me to take off some of the, maybe the teaching I've had from the past or thoughts I have about where, how revelation flows out. Yeah, I am. I am asking you to do that. And the reason for that is we do not want to have our theological framework interpret the text. We want to have the, or build the text out. We want to have the text build our theological framework. And far too often, people enter the book of Revelation like they have exactly how the framework, and then they cram Revelation through their lenses. And I've just said, let's take the glasses off, let's set them aside, and let's let Revelation shape our framework of theology. By the way, you want me to give me an example? Okay. Here's one. Pre-tribulational rapture. Hey, have you seen yet in the book of Revelation anything about a pre-trib rapture? So is he not a preacher rapture guy? No, I'm not saying that. I'm just saying, have you seen that yet in the book of Revelation? But, but Doug, uh, chapters one through three talk about the ecclesia, the church, and then you don't hear anything about them until like 1920. Uh, chapter, so they must have been raptured during that period. Now, uh, really? Okay, uh, chap, John chapter four, verse one, John says, uh, John's asked to come up here. So that must have been it, really. That's, you're going to build it off of that, really. Or the 24 presbyteros around the throne, those that represent the church. Really, do they really? Are you sure about that? Or chapter 12 today, when we get there, we're going to find out that it uses the exact same Greek word that's used in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, referring to how believers are caught up. And so that's where it is. Really, are you sure about that? You really want to build that position in Revelation off of that? Because I'm going to tell you, even though I had put uh, that whole uh, framework in my seminary doctrinal statement, you don't find it in the book of Revelation. Are you okay with that? Oh, so he's not a preacher of rapture guy. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying, what does Revelation say? Hey, be willing to be vulnerable and let the text shape us, Okay. That's five pictures, right around five minutes. I just thought you guys would be happy that I actually accomplished the timing. Okay, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> okay, all right. Bus tour stop, Revelation chapter 12. Please open your copy of God's Word there. If you don't have a Bible with you, I'd encourage you to grab one from a seat behind, pass one to someone who doesn't have, uh, you're gonna wanna have a Bible with you. Um, we are in this passage. By the way, while you're turning there, I'd like to read uh, from a couple of my uh, invisible commentary friends um, about chapter 12. They've become quite good friends of mine over the last months. Uh, Let me read from 10 of them here, just about, I think this will help set us in some things related to where we're at in the book of Revelation. They have some really good things to say. Paige Patterson, he says, chapter 12 will operate as something of a key to the understanding of the rest of the apocalypse. It's important. Robert Thomas says, the method of narration beginning at this point in Revelation differs from anything previous. I'm telling you, it gets crazy. Lewis Foster says, something more than another interlude begins in chapter 12 of Revelation. Beasley Murray says chapters 12 through 14 are more than another parenthesis. They use an exotic style of the apocalypse that reaches new heights, providing an understanding of the nature of the conflict between God and Satan. Eldon Ladd says John parts the curtain that separates earth from heaven to depict great warfare in the spiritual world. 
He goes on to say, chapter 12 explains to God's people on earth why they must face satanic evil and persecution, but it assures them that Satan has already been conquered by the blood of the Lamb. Dennis Johnson says, like the peeling of an onion, the unfolding of John's visions lead us layer by layer deeper into the mysteries of God. Isn't that cool? James Hamilton says, we need to know the danger we face. We need to know that it always looks like the odds are that Satan will win, but he always loses. We need to know that victory has been secured for those in Christ. I'm really happy about that. Craig Keener, Revelation reminds us that Jesus' followers share his cross. Hence, it warns us to prepare. Daniel Aiken Revelation 12 is something of a panorama of salvation history. It tells us in fantastic imagery and vision the true story of the whole world. It looks to the past, addresses the present, and points to the future. And lastly, Grant Osborne. Spiritual warfare is all too often neglected in the life of the average Christian. It seems as if we are all trying to be Switzerland's and remain neutral in this war. To be neutral is to lose. For Satan is real, and his hatred towards all who are made in the image of God dare not be ignored. And finally, by me, I appreciate Pastor Eric mentioning just about kids. I just want to say, I was a kid who had nightmares on this stuff. So I just am very sensitive about that. So parents, uh, you know, it's pretty graphic. Revelation chapter 12. A woman, a child, a dragon, a war. Let's begin with the woman. And God, as we open your word and we see this in this amazing portion of scripture, God, I pray that we would see you more. And Lord, part of what is seeing you more means seeing more of what's really going on. So Lord, we're going to see some sides of things that uh, oftentimes we don't want to see, we don't want to talk about, and we would just prefer to ignore. But Lord, it's real. So I pray, we are here. Help us to see you more and what's really going on. For your glory, in Christ's name we pray, amen. Okay, we're in Revelation chapter 12. I'd actually like to begin reading in verse 15 of chapter 11, what we covered last Sunday. Verse 15, then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give you thanks, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came. And the time for the dead to be judged, and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, And those who fear your name, both great and small, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, 
And the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. Chapter 12. And a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains in the agony of giving birth. Let's pause there. A woman. We see here in verse 1, it's a, it's a sign. Uh, a sign. What is a sign about here? Uh, a sign is a symbol that pictures a reality. That's not only the case for us now with signs, but that was in, in, we'll see here, there's actually, I forget, five or seven signs that come through the book of Revelation, and and they're used for that purpose. So when we see this, we're to pay attention to that. It's a symbol. And so the sign here is a woman. We'll get to that in just a second. But notice, it's a great sign. In the Greek, it's called literally a, a mega sign. It's a great sign, not a wimpy sign, not a beat-up sign. It's, it's, a, it's a great sign. By the way, the word mega, great, in this chapter is used a number of times. Verse 1 here, a mega sign. Verse 9, a mega dragon. Verse 12, mega wrath. Verse 14, a mega eagle. There's a lot of mega apocalyptic talk going on here. A, a great sign, and I want to note, it appeared By the way, that's really important here. Let me make one reminder. John is not the source of this. It appeared. And sometimes people make comments about the book of Revelation, like John was out reading and and he's referring back to these other, you know, apocalyptic kinds of literature in the day, in the time, and, and John's almost like he's crafting this up, but that's not what's happening in Revelation. John is not inventing the stories. John is not conniving the illustrations. John is seeing them and is recording them down. We've seen that all through Revelation. And a sign appeared and John is writing down what he sees. He's not the author. He's the recorder. The author is our Lord. Okay? That's very important for all of this. A great sign. It appeared and appeared in heaven that's so cool. This sign appears against the backdrop of heaven. I, I have to remind us, the whole book of Revelation just reminds us again and again and again, friends, that what happens here happens here in the, within the, with the backdrop of heaven over it all. Everything that goes on here is known in heaven well. In fact, a sovereign God knows to the minutia what is going on. In heaven, and a great sign appeared in heaven, and it's a a woman. The reason I have uh, quotations around a woman in in your sermon notes there is because this is not an actual woman. It's a sign. She's a sign. The sign is a woman, and the woman is a sign of something. Uh, It symbolizes something she does. And he talks, first he tells of her attire, and then he tells of her condition. So let's take a look at her attire, verse 1. Uh, She's clothed with the sun. Psalm 104 talks about how the sun, essentially this idea of brilliance, this idea of splendor and majesty. It says that the moon is under her feet. Psalm 89, speaking of God's love uh, and telling of the Davidic line in verse 37, Psalm 89 says, like the moon, David's offspring shall be established forever. 
like a faithful witness in the skies. There's a tie here with the moon to the Davidic line here. The sun and the moon, if you think about it, in Genesis 1.16, on the fourth day of creation, it says, God made the two great lights. The greater light to rule the day, the sun. The lesser light to rule the night, the moon. And by the way, he also says, along with the stars in that verse. By the way, what's the next thing that adorns her? Twelve stars. She's clothed with the sun, the moon under her feet, 12 stars. Uh, I can just tell you almost no matter what framework you're approaching the book of Revelation with, pretty much almost everybody agrees that this is in reference to Genesis 37 and to the 12 tribes of Israel in some kind of a way. Going to Genesis 37, Joseph, we'll just say the youngest brother at the time, we'll kind of refer to him that way. And so this younger brother has two dreams in Genesis 37 and the first dream, and I, I'm laughing because I was the youngest brother of two, of three brothers, and so I really relate to Joseph. Naive, sometimes an idiot, you know, that kind of stuff compared to the other brothers. And here he is, he comes to his, his brothers, and he says, hey guys, I had a dream. Here's my dream, in case you were wanting to know. I can just see a little brother doing this. And he says, here's what happened. We were all out in the weed field. And, uh, and my wheat stood up, and all of your wheat came and bowed down to my wheat. I bet that's going over real well. You know, with uh, as many kids as they had now at this point in time, he's probably got some brothers in their 20s, and we're like, we could take you out in a second, and, and that kind of is real. Uh, dream number two in chapter 37, Joseph doesn't stop there. He uh, comes dream number two and he says, hey guys, I had another dream. And they're like, yeah, dude, talk to us about this. And uh, he says, the, the sun, the moon, and 11 stars were bowing down to me. 11 brothers and Joseph, 12 stars. This is, I'm just, this is all coming back to this crown of 12 stars on this woman um, whether it's the clothing is the sun, of the sun, moon, and 12 stars represents majesty in the Davidic reign and the 12 tribes, or as some say, Jacob and Rachel and 12 tribes, pretty much all would agree her attire has a real tie to God's people, Israel, especially from the Old Testament, the nation of Israel. I'm just going to take a second to note this. I, I've been working really, really hard to kind of take my lenses off and, and be very open to the scripture and have it unfold, but I think I'm just going to toss something out here as your tour guide here. One of the things I continue to observe is in this revelation, we continue to see this idea that the Lord is showing John and really the seven local churches, showing John these Jewish Israelite images again and again. And I'm asking this question, why if 70 plus years post the uh, resurrection ascension of Jesus Christ, if the nation of Israel, as some say, has been replaced by the church, why some 70 years later is God still using Israelite Jewish imagery to show what he's doing? 
Like, for instance, why does the Lord uh, in chapter 7 say uh, 144,000 each of, from the tribes of the sons of Israel? Why is there imagery used of a golden censer, an altar, and temple offering uh, in chapter 8? Why the measuring of a temple in the outer court and, and the holy city of Jerusalem terminology in chapter 11? And why here in chapter 12 is the woman clearly clothed with this Israelite Jewish imagery if, if it's been 70 years post done with Israel. I'm just laying it out. I'm just talking. I'm not mad about it. I'm just kind of working through thinking. I want to think something out with you. Um, I'm just kind of asking the question, why if we're in a new covenant process and he's done with Israel, why does he keep going back and using those images? It's just, I'm thinking through it. I'm working through it, laying out the pieces. And if you have no idea what I'm talking about right now, good for you. Uh, That's her attire. Now we're a condition. Uh, Verse 2, she's pregnant. She's in labor. She's crying out. She's giving birth. Okay, ladies, you have the upper hand on this understanding um, in this. Uh, Would you agree that um, um, this kind of condition is not the kind of condition that you want to be in to go into war? Would you agree? I mean, you got enough on your hands going on right now. To, to consider the whole idea of now going into war when that's your place, when you're right in the whole laboring reality of it. And by the way, guys, if it's kind of like, hey, hey honey, uh, giving birth right now, how about, how about we step into a Lord of the Rings kind of a war together? Listen, dude, you are done if you try that. Okay, and yet, I bring that up because look at what takes place. In in the intensity, in the amazing work of God, of birthing, and the fragility that really is there, the vulnerability of this woman in the place of giving birth, take a look at this, because right now, right now in that place, a fierce dragon shows up. Verse 3, now another sign appeared in heaven, behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns. And on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth. Why? So that when she bore the child, he might devour it. This is a pretty sick picture. I mean, this is like epic battle. So here we have this dragon. We're told here in verse 3, it's another sign. It's another symbol. Again, that's why in your notes you have the quotations around. It's not a dragon, but we're we're talking dragon here to represent something here. It's pointing to a reality here. By the way, I think this is really, really cool. It's, It's a sign, not a mega sign. Did you see with the woman? It was a great sign, not with the dragon. There, there's some cool things with that reality. Who, who, who you understand the woman to be, whether it's the nation of Israel or, or the church, it's the kind of thing. The Lord says, that's a great sign. Now we come to a sign. But notice that the sign is also a great dragon. It's a great dragon. It's not a great sign. It's a sign, but it is a great dragon. By the way, God's people are mega important to him. And the dragon is a great dragon but he's not the great sign. It appeared in heaven, like uh, with the woman. It's a dragon, a dragon. I mean, you can't think of too many more fierce beasts 
than that, and especially in Hebrew thought, the Leviathan, the, the dragon was uh, Old Testament Hebrew idea was like the, the fiercest of all conceived animals ever. And it's a great dragon. It's, it's not your typical dragon. It's a great dragon. And it's a red dragon. Why is it red? I, I'm not, I don't know. Could it be, as some say, it's flame colored denoting destruction, or others say, I don't know, maybe it's blood red denoting murder. By the way, it is in a context of a murderous act. It's a great red dragon, and it has seven heads. Is this an actual seven heads, or does the seven symbolize completeness or fullness? I'm more likely think that, that complete craftiness, full craftiness. Remember, the dragon's a sign. Seven heads, ten horns. Does this, does this allude to the fourth beast of Daniel chapter 7 with the ten kings from the fourth empire? In Revelation 5, 6, very interesting. The lion lamb, Jesus Christ, the resurrected, magnified, glorified Jesus Christ, the lion who is the lamb, the lamb who is the lion, is said to have seven horns. Could this be an attempt by the dragon to be an imitation of the lamb? Honestly, I'm not sure right now. We're laying out the pieces. We'll let the text unfold. Or could it later be, I just don't say this very often, could it later be relating to the 10 kings of Revelation 17, but we're not there yet. Seven diadems. Seven crowns this dragon has. By the way, it's so cool how God and his word uses the right kinds of words. Do you remember with the presbyteros, the 24 presbyteros around the, the throne of the Father, it talks about how they have Stephanus crowns, and I kind of made a deal out of that. Stephanus crowns are victory crowns, and, and the reason I made a deal out of that is because now you come, and these are not Stephanus crowns in the Greek, these are diadem crowns in the Greek. That means that they have power and, and authority, but Stephanus crowns emphasize victory victory, not this dude's crowns. He may have power and authority, but he doesn't have the crown of victory. It really matters. It means a lot. In that, by the way, Ephesians 2, Satan is called the prince of this world, the ruler of the kings of air. Then verse 4, he has a tail. The dragon's tail is sweeping down a third of the stars of heaven, having cast them. It's an heiress form. It means that it's a completed act. He cast them to earth, to earth, not to Neptune, not to Pluto, not to a galaxy far, far away, but to earth. By the way, in Revelation, earth, the word earth is used some 63 times in the book of Revelation. I bring that up and I'm just laying it out there. The earth matters in the book of Revelation. Okay, I'm just going to leave it there. Stars of heaven Stars, uh, over and over again, uh, stars represent angels. And I think we clearly have this idea of this dragon doing this uh, dragon swipe of a third of the angels who came along with them. By the way, I'm not going to talk any really anymore on that because next Sunday I'm going to talk about how I got started with Satan and what he's doing today. We're going to step out of the book of Revelation. This is too important uh, not to leave quickly. But it says he cast them down to earth. By the way, that idea is so often in the book of or chapter 12. Verse 4, he cast them to earth. Then verse 9, the great dragon was thrown down. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. By the way, the throwing down is passive form, which means it was the action was done not by him, the action was done by someone else. Hmm, I wonder who that is. By the way, verse 9 tells us that the dragon is the devil, the dragon is Satan. 
Then in verse 10, Satan has been, it says, thrown down. Verse 12, it says, for the devil has come down to you. Verse 13, the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to earth. In our places, this dragon resides on earth. We live on earth, don't we? This is no game, friends. This is no game. The dragon described now his condition. What's he doing? He's standing before the woman who's about to give birth, waiting for her child to be born so that he might devour the child. What's it mean? It means eat it. The word that's used here is the exact same word that the mighty angel used when he told John to eat the little scroll. It's the same word. When the baby got the picture here, sorry about this, But here's the picture. This woman is giving birth to a child and the dragon is right there like the doctor waiting for the child to be born and as soon as the baby's crowning, oh wait, as soon as the baby is born, huh? You know, this whole image here, it seems like this is a really bad battle plan by God. I mean, I got to tell you, the dragon has the upper hand. I mean, what's the woman going to do? Come on, I'll take you on. <laughs> She's kind of engaged, right? And then the, the baby, the baby's like, Wah. <laughs> Seems like a really bad battle plan with this woman and child. Kind of like God's battle plans of turn the other cheek. Or bless those who persecute you. Or love your enemies. Or preach Christ crucified and not the world's eloquent wisdom. Or or choose the weak things of the world. Boy, don't those all seem like really bad battle plans? I mean, they do. You know, it's over and over again, one of the things about the Bible that really is so cool is it kind of seems like God, over and over again, picks the no-names and the wimps on the playground. Abraham, who is he? Who is Abraham? Some total random dude. Joseph. He was just the younger brother, kind of a punk. Kind of naive. Kind of annoying. David. Nation of Israel. Matthew. I mean, he's a tax collector. And the other 11 disciples. Oh, and by the way, how about me? And how about you? Let's just be frank about it. In a world that is so about self-esteem, let's just do the reality of esteeming ourselves. We're just regular, normal people. I mean, in the whole thing of the whole world, who are we? We seem like not the people that to be best chosen to do a great task. But the thing that's so cool is God and God, God again and again and again chooses the lowly to show himself great. And God loves this battle plan. Listen, if you feel like you're a loser, 
If you feel incompetent, if you just feel like, who am I? That's a great place to be. Because the Lord wants to come there and show himself mighty there. The woman is giving birth to a child and the dragon's ready to eat her child. She can't do a thing about it. Here's the big point today. The dragon is not about eating the woman. The dragon is all about eating the child. The dragon hates the child. The war is about Satan against the Godhead. And you and I are his collateral damage. Here's the fact of the matter. Satan could care less about you and I. He hates you and I for the single reason, even outside of a follower of Christ or not follower of Christ, out of the fact of having been created in the image of God, He wants to destroy you, not because you or I matter, but because he hates God. And if he can do anything to hurt, maim, disgust, irritate God, he will do it gladly. And by the way, I'm not meaning that he has to take you out. He can just nullify you, distract you, get you stuck in drugs, get you stuck in anger and bitterness, get you struck, stuck in selfishness, get you stuck in porn, get you stuck in other truth besides God's truth, get you stuck and luring for money and stuff. He hates you. And he doesn't care a lick about you. You and I are Satan's collateral damage. That's the fact. And know this. He's lost. He is losing. And he will lose. But know this. He's on a war ramp. And he's out for anything that can get at God. And that's why he goes for the child, but he loses Just watch how this unfolds. The child, verses five and six. She gave birth to a male child. One is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, but her child was caught up to God and the Father and was his throne. And 
the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. A child. By the way, do you know? The child is not a sign. Why? Because the child is a child. You see that? That's really, really important. The child is not a sign. The child is a child. And it's a male child. Okay, can we just all agree we understand this is Jesus Christ incarnate, God in the flesh? Here's what's so cool. The Lord in his word basically brings the entire incarnation into a couple words. What's happening here in all this is that this child is about to be birthed from the woman. Um, um, I'll just say, I, I think this is the nation of Israel coming out. It makes sense that the nation of Israel, not the, the church didn't birth Christ, uh, Christ birthed the church, but the nation of Israel, if you will, birthed Christ. And the Christ is, that Satan is waiting there ready to devour him right away. Why? Because that's where the war is at. And if that baby boy is born, but yet here in this word, God's word, it talks about how it's like, it's born, it's lived, it's died on the cross, it's resurrected and ascended, all right in that statement. And he's waiting there to devour, and she gave birth to a male child. Her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness. You see, the dragon's waiting there. Ah, here's come, it's crowning, as I said before, and all of a sudden the baby's born, and he's like, ah. <laughs> and the baby's gone. Why? Because the God had stepped in. And the God had did work in the face of the dragon. And the dragon lost at the cross. The dragon lost at the resurrection. And the text tells us that this child will rule nations with an iron rod. And the New International Version says, I think it says iron scepter in there. And you got the idea. By the way, it doesn't necessarily mean a tyrannical rule, but it does mean a firm rule. I'm curious, when is this talking about? Because does he rule this way in heaven or something? I'm not sure we're laying out the pieces. Uh, he's caught up. He's snatched up to God, uh, to the throne. It, by the way, it's the same word as I mentioned earlier, 1 Thessalonians 4.17. This idea, and in the word in the Greek, it's quite a, a violent word. It's like this vehement, uh, uh, sudden snatching up. It's not like slow-mo and now we get why. Because it's got to be like that fast because the dragon's going for it. And yet it's snatched up and we see the whole gospel collapsed or brought into verse 5 there and the dragon loses, the child wins, the Lord is victorious. So what does a loser dragon do? He goes after the woman. I'm just telling you, friends, you got, you got to get this. This is so sick. He goes after the woman. She flees into the wilderness, and yet God spares her. She flees into the wilderness. Man, such an exodus feel there. It's a place prepared by the Father. How cool is that? She's nourished there for 1,260 days, three and a half years. There's a familiar number. No, I'm not going to lay it out right now. We're just putting the pieces out. And then the story continues in verse 13. By the way, we're right on time. Everything's good. We speed it up here. Verse 13, and when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to earth, he pursued the woman who had been given birth to the male child. They're kind of repeating it, okay, because we'll, we'll read that little section in between real quickly. But he's repeating. He's catching the reader back up. Verse 14, but the woman was given the two wings of the great, the mega eagle, 
so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and a half a time. We've seen that before. All that's what was said in verse 5, verse 15. The serpent poured out water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman. He lost again. He went after the woman, but he lost. God intervenes. God does something here. Verse 15, the serpent, by the way, that's going all the way, referring back to Genesis. The serpent pours the water out like a, a river sweeper away. The, the earth came to the help of the woman. What's happening here? I, I agree with Patterson here. He says, efforts to interpret what precisely is meant by the river of water and the earth swallowing the river seem doomed in terms of precision. But the interpreter can certainly say that God has provided the means by which the woman is protected. The time in which this happens, which I do think is in the future yet, specifically here in the text, but I'll say this, we know this, God is going to protect her again for a period of time. The dragon lost with the child, the dragon lost with the woman, so what's the dragon going to do? Pick up his cards and go home and whine. No, he's going after look at verse 17, then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Friends, while I do think this is personally, I think this is future in its nature, I will also say this, as we'll see next week, this is personal in the now. Those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus, he went off to make war with them. By the way, the very end of chapter 12, and he stood on the sand of the sea. Who cares? Well, it's really interesting here. Because look at chapter 13. Verse 1, and I saw a beast rising out of the what? Oh, and by the way, keep reading and you'll find out that this beast has ten horns and seven heads. That sounds familiar. Transfer of power. Friends, in all of this, I'm asking today that we see this. There is a war. And you are hated. This is no game. Do you understand that? This is no game that we are in. Are we, are you, living and thinking like Switzerland? I'm just neutral. No, you're not. No, you're not, I'm sorry to say. You are in the war.
want to finish with reading verses 7 through 12, and we'll wrap it. There's this kind of little interlude within the story here. Here we go. Verse 7. Now war arose in heaven. Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. By the way, the movement of the grammar gives the idea that the dragon started the fight. Okay? Verse 8. But he was defeated. And there was no longer any place for them in heaven, and the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent scumball, that's in the Hebrew, Greek somewhere, (laughs) who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. We're going to see some of that next Sunday. He was thrown down to earth, and his angels were thrown down with him, and, and I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, by the way, everything from now through verse 12 is all this voice saying, and it's saying... In heaven, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ. By the way, that terminology was over in chapter 11. Of the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down. The accuser, the one who accuses them day and night before our God. We're going to see that next Sunday in, real, in reality. Verse 11, and they have conquered him. How? By the blood of the Lamb. Note, not by men and women manning it up and getting tougher and tougher and taking the dragon on by themselves. Not that. Not self-works. Not self-religion. Not not being a spiritual warrior on your own. No, no, no. Only by the blood of the Lamb. Listen, next Sunday. Here's the fact. Satan standing before God, accusing you and I, is making accusations that are true. We are sinners. Just look back at this last week for you and me. And he's accusing you and I again and again and again and again before the Father. And we can't earn it. Only by the blood of the Lamb applied. And, by the way, by the word of their testimony, put into action. For they loved not their lives. I would highly encourage you to circle that, underline that, star that. For they loved not their lives, even unto death. They loved the Lamb more than their lives. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath. By the way, the word for wrath right there, it is not the same wrath used of God the Father. The prior wrath statement being used in, uh, in chapter 12 is a statement of God's settled disposition. This word here used for wrath is an out-of-control emotional wrath. He's out of control. Why? Because he knows that his time is short. Friends, we are in a war. And Satan, from his standpoint, is in an all-out war. And it's a real war. It's a war that began in heaven, is all about heaven. He's a deceiver, he's an enemy, he's the accuser. He's that perpetual spiritual tattletale and slander of you and I before God. 
But the headline of this is conquered by the blood. Have you been washed by the blood? Do you know Christ as your Savior? Because if you don't, you're in trouble. And I don't say that with joy. I say that with grand love and care and concern for you. Conquered by the word of their testimonies, they love not their lives. They saw the war and they knew they were hated, but they knew that the Lamb had conquered and so they hung on that truth. Do you ever sit back and just ask, why does it have to be this way? Why the war? Come back next Sunday. We're going to talk that. We're going to step out of the book of Revelation. We're going to take a look at how this war got started and what it looks like now. A woman, a dragon, a child, a war. Lord, I'm just going to leave it there. Uh, and with this reality, you've won. You've won. The dragon has lost, is losing, and will lose. But here's the reality. In your sovereignty, you have allowed a period of time for him to be at war with you. And God, I would pray, number one, would you help us to see the war? We, we get so caught up in our day-to-day -day things, and yes, they matter, and yes, they're important, but, but the reality is, is they really only matter in the light of the whole war that's going on. And Father, for the person right now who's just discouraged and defeated and just dragging, Father, if they are in Christ, may, I just, may you remind them that it's not about who they are and how great they are. It's about whose they are. They are yours. And would you hold them and support them in your right hand? Lord, it's tiring living in this war and you know that. You've been around this war a lot longer than we have. You know our frailty. You know our situations. And yet in the you are hated reality is the grand reality of you are loved. Lord, help us to see you. Grasp you. Help us to cling on to you. Oh Lord, I pray, come finish the war. Come finish the war, Lord. Help us to love you, not our lives. But until you come and finish the war, Lord, onward we go. Victorious in Christ. Hail Redeemer, hail. Come. Lord, come. In the precious name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.